0: ever since the advent of the Rolaids commercial on tv where we are asked how do you spell relief and the answer to that riddle is not r-e-l-i-e-f but rather r-o-l-a-i-d-s we have been redefining or spelling words and problems in other ways than what they may appear to be and that unique catchy little way of uh, redefining a problem or an answer to a question has invaded many other areas of our life. If you were to ask me, Terry, how do you spell frustration on any particular day, I might respond with K-I-B-S or R E V E K A H, or Abby or Sarah. But if you were to ask me at some other particular time, Cherry, how do you spell joy? I might very well answer with the the same response. And if you were to ask some teenagers, how do you spell genes? A word that any teenager should be able to spell correctly. They might respond with L-E-V-I-S or 501s or Calvin Klein. And we know that uh, the world spells love, S E X, and that genes uh, or Levi's are more than just genes, and they are not the only manufacturer of genes. And we know that love is not equated just with sex, but in the appropriate context and uh, the appropriate atmosphere between a husband and a wife, sex is that appropriate expression of love. So in our society today we find oftentimes that uh, words are not what they seem or at least the way in which we understand them or define them. And take the word success. And how do you find define success or how do you spell success? Some people would spell it M O N E Y. Other people might spell it P O W E R. Others would spell it with the word image or varnaise. Um, They might spell it through athletic success or intellectual prowess or business success. Lots of different ways in which some people tend to spell the word success. They see that and and a word comes to mind. And if we were to ask God, God, how do you spell success? we might be very surprised by his answer. And in fact, it was that very question that was troubling the remnant of Israel in 520 B.C. of how do you spell success? And the way in which they tried to spell that word to define it created some discouragement among them. For those of you who were here two weeks ago, you know that we looked into the first chapter of the book of Haggai. And we talked about how important our priorities are in our life in either developing or deteriorating our relationship with God. And today I would like to finish the book of Haggai and look at chapter 2, in which there are three messages from that prophet. For those of you who are not here with us two weeks ago, Haggai is that little jewel tucked in the back of your Old Testament, right between Zephaniah and Zechariah. And at this time, a remnant had returned from captivity in Babylon, where God was carrying out 70 years of discipline against the nation of Israel. And he sends his man, his messenger, Haggai, from Babylon back to the remnant that has returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And we know in his first message in chapter 1 that Haggai brought a a scolding rebuke to these people because they had started a temple project, carried it on for two years, and then stopped for some 16 years. And Haggai comes to tell them that they need to return to the task of rebuilding the temple. And that was on August 29th, 520 BC. And now we have switched. Uh, I better look in here and see which we've switched to. We have switched to October 17th, 520 B.C. for his second message. The first one, as you recall, he came uh, to rebuke. Now he is coming with a message of encouragement. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? The seventh month here is the month of Tishri, which is a very important month for the Jewish people because from the 15th to the 21st of that month, they celebrated the Feast of Booths, Booz not Booths, but Booths, or the Feast of uh, Tabernacles. And in the uh, Feast of, uh, in both of these, they were celebrating uh, God's provision for them as they uh, went in the Exodus from Egypt, his provision for them in their wilderness wanderings. And the other part of the celebration of this feast was with respect to the ingathering of the summer harvest. That their crops would have been bountiful and they would rejoice in what they had received from the Lord through those crops. And it's also a time at which, for them, at this particular time, is a sad time. It's supposed to be a time of rejoicing, yet it's at this time uh, many years ago that Solomon dedicated his magnificent temple, which the Lord had helped him build, the first temple, with all its ornate beauty, And the Shekinah glory of the Lord came and filled that temple. And we see from Haggai's questions to these these people that there is some sadness in their hearts, some discouragement. As he says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? This is a time of a great feast annually, yet they don't sense this, the joy of that great feast, Ezra tells us in Ezra chapter 3 that the people who were alive to see the old temple and who are alive now seeing this other temple being rebuilt, when the laying of the foundation took place, they wept because they knew that the former glory was gone. Not only the ornateness, the ornate beauty, but also that the Shekinah glory was no longer there. And they looked at that temple and they wept. And perhaps their weeping spread to the rest of the people and created that feeling of discouragement that this temple was not going to be as great as the other temple. And they were also lacking at this time of rebuilding the temple, the articles of the temple. There was no Ark of the Covenant. There was no veil for the Holy of Holies. There was no altar of incense. So they really didn't have a place to celebrate this feast. And not only that, they didn't have any food to celebrate this feast. The Lord had had brought drought, had brought blazing winds, so their crops were not as full as they had hoped. If you can imagine uh, how you would feel at Thanksgiving time, if instead of celebrating Thanksgiving with a large turkey feast and all that goes along with that, that we all know so well, you celebrated Thanksgiving... With bread and water and that was all that you had and imagine that instead of your home or the comfort of a relative's home or a friend's home that you had no home in which to celebrate the feast of Thanksgiving how would you feel that's somewhat the feeling that these people had it was one of discouragement They were downtrodden. They looked at the task, and their hearts sank. And God recognized that, and so he sends Haggai a message for the people. Not one of rebuke this time, but one of encouragement. One to hopefully cheer them up, to encourage them on in the task in which they're about to take. So let's look at his message here in verses 4 and 5. But now take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. The message is short and sweet. Take courage and work, for I am with you. Now the idea behind... That word, take courage, and for some of you, you may be reading the idea of be strong, is one in which we are to positively prepare our mind and our heart for battle. We are the ones who are to gear ourselves for what is going to take place. The Lord wants us to do that in a positive way. Because oftentimes, as these people look at the task before them, we look at the task and we shy away from it. We become weak. We become faint of heart. And that was happening to these people here. And so he asked them to take courage. And after they were to take courage, he wanted them to express that courage. Not just to stand there, but he wanted them to work. To move ahead on the task that he had asked them to complete. Again, he's urging them to respond in obedience. Take courage do not worry about the internal circumstances. Do not worry about the external circumstances which may prohibit you from building that temple. If you recall, one of the reasons they stopped is from outside opposition. Their neighbors were not so friendly. And so I'm sure they were concerned about that this time. And internally, they were comparing that temple with another temple. And they were becoming discouraged. They are almost defeated before they started the task. Because they were so concerned about matching what had already been done. And the Lord says, No, that's not how I want you to look at it. I want you to take care, take courage, and work. And the reason that He could ask them to do that is because He says, For I am with you. I am the one who will be there to meet your needs. I am the one who is going to supply what is lacking. Sure, you don't have the craftsmen that Solomon had. You don't have the gold that Solomon had. You don't have the timber that Solomon had. But that's not the important thing. You have me. I am with you. That's what's important. Because he asks asked them to remember what has taken place with their ancestors. That promise that he made to them when they left Egypt The Lord did not say, leave Egypt and then sit passively back and watch. Not at all. Remember what the Lord did for his people? He got actively involved with them to help them. Who was it who parted the Red Sea so they could cross on dry land and then closed it up again when Pharaoh came across? Who was it who brought water out of a rock in the midst of the desert when they were crying out for thirst, longing for Egypt? Who was it who provided quail and manna as food for them continually? And not only for just a couple of years, as God had hoped that it would take them to move from Egypt to the Promised Land, but God stayed with them for 40 years when the people were disobedient to go into the Promised Land. He met their need for those 40 years. And he says, remember how I met those needs. I'm capable of meeting your needs. I'm capable of building this temple the way that I want it built. Don't be so concerned with those things. Don't be so concerned with the external circumstances, with the internal problems. Don't be defeated before you start. Because I am with you. Notice, he says, my spirit is abiding in your midst. The idea is one of continuous action. That there is always the Lord abiding in their midst. And the same is true for us as believers today. We have the Holy Spirit within us all the time, not just some of the time. God loves us so much that he gave us his Holy Spirit to work with us all the time. And whatever he asks of, of us, he will enable us to do it. He's asked these people to build the temple. He'll enable them to do it. He'll provide for them all that they need. To build that temple. So he says, you have no reason, no reason at all to fear the known or the unknown. And so he says, do not fear. The message is, take courage and work, for I am with you. My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. And as I think about that for myself, how often we as a people get bogged down when we look at a task that's before us. We hear the word of God or we read it and a message comes to us or a friend talks to us. We realize that there's a project to be done, a sin to avoid, a command to obey, maybe a ministry to be committed to. And all of a sudden we become very weak and our knees buckle we say, oh Lord, I can't do that. There's no way. How can I do that? It's because we're forgetting who God is. We're forgetting that God has given us His Spirit to accomplish the task that He's called us to do. And we do not have to look at it and say, but my ministry won't be as big as John's ministry or Sue's ministry. It won't be as great, Lord. It won't be as good as the ministry I had Back in Denver, or Montana, or New York. But that's not the point. The point is that we need to have God's perspective in the whole situation. You see, at times they felt that it was too difficult, too tough, too impossible. And we feel that same thing. We feel it's too difficult, too impossible to do what God asks us to do. And that's because we're looking at it from our own human perspective. And what we need is to have God's perspective on the whole situation. And that's what God wants to do through Haggai the prophet, is to wipe out that negative perspective that these people have and give them a new perspective, give him his perspective. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. We can see from this that at some time yet to come, a cataclysmic event of some sort, perhaps, is going to take place. It seems that Haggai is describing something unusual, in which the earth and the heavens uh, will be shaken by God, and the nations, the rulers of nations, and the powers of nations will be shaken. And in the short term, that seems to be true, from the time that this prophecy was written. Just prior to this time, Babylon was in power. Then they were overcome by the Medes and the Persians, Who are in power. Then they are overcome by the Greeks. Who are in power. And they are overcome by Rome. And things have have drifted down since that time. As to who is in control. Who are the world powers. And God is the one who directs that. But in the distant view. We need to remember. There is going to come a time. When God is going to intervene into human history. His hand will come down. And pull the curtain. On human history as we know it. And he will indeed shake the world and shake the nations because he's going to establish a new order, the order that he desires to have. And we look forward to that time. And he says, with respect to this house, that it will be filled with glory. That the uh, silver is mine and the gold is mine. In verse 8, it's a reminder to these people that even though they seem to be lacking in some materials, God says, hey... Who's in control? Who owns the silver? Who owns the gold? Don't worry about producing that. I can produce that if I want you to put that in the temple. If I want it to have a lot of gold, I'll get you a lot of gold. If I want it to have a lot of silver, I'll get a lot of silver. It's no problem for me. I'm not one who has to go begging, borrowing, stealing from people to get the supplies that I want, to equip you, to enable you. Don't worry about that. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. See, when Solomon built his temple, it was a beautiful, ornate structure. Filled with gold, filled with silver, beautiful timber, beautiful craftsmanship. And then there was the cloud, the Shekinah glory of the Lord that filled that temple. And indeed it was glorious. And the people who were alive at that time, and who are alive at this time, realized that. And they saw that. But he says, the glory of this house that you're building is going to be far greater. And it's not a comparison between one temple and another. It's a comparison between the glory of one and the glory of another. Because for the Jews and for God, there's only one house. Regardless of how many times the temple was destroyed and rebuilt, there's just one temple. And he says, but the glory changes. And the glory of the old temple is going to be nothing like the glory of the new temple. And we know that, because when Jesus walked 2,000 years ago into Jerusalem and into the temple, from God's perspective, glory was filling that temple. God incarnate was in that spot. And for us, we know that when the temple is, is rebuilt and God's glory again fills that temple, when Jesus comes again, as he will, not in human likeness, But in the fullness of deity, his glory will fill the temple. And that glory is far greater than the shadow that was given to them of the Shekinah glory. And yet they didn't see that. But God knew that. And he needed to tell them that. To encourage them to say, just do what I ask you to do. And I'm going to make this temple that you're building one that has far more glory to it. So you can see for these people, the way in which they began to define success created discouragement. The way they began to define success, to spell success, was we need to build a temple greater, as great, or greater than the one that was built. And they put the burden on themselves. We need to come up with the glory. And God says, no, it's not your responsibility to come up with the glory. That's my responsibility. You just do what I ask you to do. And that's build a temple. See, they were defining success in terms of what they do. And God spells success F-A-I-T-H-F-U-L-N-E-S-S. Faithfulness. That's all he was asking them to do, was to be faithful. That's all that he asks us to do, is to be faithful. Faithful in the little things. Faithful in reading his word. Faithful in being obedient. Faithful in our relationships to people. Especially our relationship to him. You see, he's beginning to put a new, new term on success for these people. So <clears> Haggai <throat> in his third, second message here brings one of encouragement. Helping them to understand success from God's point of view. And yet it's not too long, just a couple of months from that time, that he needed to come back and help them again with a message of how God views success. In December 18th of 520 BC, the people are concerned with another issue. The issue here is not what one does, but what one has. And they began to spell success in terms of what they had. And so Haggai comes to tell them that that's not quite the picture that God has for them. On the twenty-fourth of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If one is unclean from a corpse... Touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It will become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. See, from the uh, Levitical standard that they had, they were, there were some certain requirements with respect to uh, things food, and clothing which were clean, acceptable, sanctified, or holy, and and unclean. And the point that he's making here is that he's saying, if something is holy, sanctified, and touches something that is not, or has not been sanctified, but is not necessarily sin, such as oil or wine, does it become holy? He said no. The priest said no. That doesn't take place. Well, what about if something... It was unclean, such as a person who has been in contact with a corpse. From Levitical standards, we understand that if you touched a dead person, then you were unclean and you had to refrain from doing certain things for a certain period of time. He says, will he become unclean? Will that object that the person touches become unclean? And he said, yes, the uncleanness is transferred to that article. In order for us to get a visual handle on this, Think of a marshmallow. It's a good thing to think of on a Sunday morning. A nice, round, white marshmallow, all ready for roasting. Okay, there you are. And you put your marshmallow on the stick. Now, does the marshmallow make the stick clean? Because it's clean? No. Chances are, the stick will make the marshmallow dirty. Now, if the, if the marshmallow doesn't take to the stick and falls to the ground, does the clean marshmallow make the ground clean? No, the ground makes the marshmallow dirty. In the same sense, if you have a sick member in your family, is the sick person in your family made clean by the presence of the healthy people in your family? No, in fact, the opposite happens. If you have a sick person in your family, that sickness tends to spread throughout the family. And any of you who have got family or are living with other people right now, realize how often that happens. There's a standing joke amongst those who uh, know me over the last few years about how often I have colds. It seems like every time somebody talks to me, I've got a cold. And the reason is I've got three little girls who love me so much, they like to give me everything that they have. They just love to give dad their colds. So you can see that he's saying that the uncleanness is transferred to the article. And he's telling these people a point. They thought that even though they were rebellious, disobedient to God, that would not affect their crops, their harvest, and it would not affect their personal relationship with him. And he's saying, not so. Because you've been disobedient, I really don't care. For your sacrifices and your crops, I'm not going to bless those either. That their relationship with God was key to the rest of their life. And they had forgotten what Samuel and David had said that obedience was better than sacrifice. If we look at uh 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two, Samuel says, Has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. And King David in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 said, For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Hosea 6.6, 6, he says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He was trying to teach these people a point. That God wants us far more than he wants our things. Far more than anything we could give to him. And if we're giving God things, but we haven't given Him ourselves, He really doesn't care. He's really not too excited about it. He's really not pleased with it. That's a hard lesson for us to understand. That God wants us first. He wants our hearts first, above everything else, above anything else, before we give Him anything. You see, it's easy sometimes to give our money, to give our time to give a bag of groceries, to give some, some clothes, to give almost anything but to give ourselves. And God says the most important thing to give is yourselves, not what you have. And after you give yourselves, then you can give what you have. You see, if you haven't given yourselves to God this morning and the offering went around and you put something in it, God's not all excited about that. He's not smiling at that. Because what he wants is you. He wants you to give yourself to God. And then he is excited about anything that you would give to him. He's pleased with that. But now, do consider from this day backward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only ten. And when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would be only twenty. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Haggai tells them, consider your ways. Consider what's taking place. Does that sound familiar from the previous message in chapter 1? That they were to consider their ways. Because when they went to the grain heap, there wasn't enough grain. When they went to the wine vat, there wasn't enough wine. Why? Why? Because God was at work in their lives. God was the one who smote their harvest. He's the one who made the lack. And why did he make it? Because he loves them so much he wants to get their attention to the fact that they're ignoring him. They're pushing him aside. So he creates the conditions that hopefully will turn their hearts towards him. He is the one who wants to draw us back To himself. And oftentimes, we look at our situation and we wonder, why are we in the circumstances that we're in? It's because God, perhaps, is working in our very lives. It was a principle for this nation, and they knew it, that if they were obedient to God, God would bless them. If they were disobedient god would discipline them they knew that from day one because god had told them that and the same is true for us as believers that as we're obedient to god god will bless us and god will meet our needs and when we're disobedient we can't exactly call upon god and say god bless me make me great and what is that blessing from god i don't think that blessing from god is that we're going to be made rich or that we're going to be made famous but, but that he's going to meet our needs our physical our spiritual our emotional needs but i have the problem and i'm sure you do at times is, uh, from determining what is a need and what is a want or a desire because god's not obligated to meet our desires he hasn't unilaterally made us promises to keep us free from sickness to keep us free from injury To keep us free from poverty. He just says that I will meet your needs. And there are times when I confess I feel like I'm sitting on the Oregon coast in a fog bank. Or I'm in Southern California engulfed in the smog. And I cannot see clearly around myself to determine what is a legitimate need. And what are the things that I just want? What are the things that are just my desires? That God says, no, I'm not obligated to meet that and yet there are times when the perspective becomes clear there are times when i feel like i'm sitting in the valley outside of stanley and the fog and the clouds part and the sawtooths are there and all their majesty and beauty and i can see each one of them clearly and just as clearly i can see what my needs are and what my wants are but it depends on my relationship with god and how close i have drawn to god And he also tells them that there are consequences for their sin. That it'll have to run its course. That there won't be another crop for another year. But because they've been disobedient this past year, their present crop is going to fall short. But he also says, from this time on, I'm going to bless you. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider is the seed still in the barn even including the vine of the fig tree the pomegranate and the olive tree it has not borne fruit yet from this day on I will bless you see the people had the idea that they were going to be blessed as soon as they responded in obedience to God they said hey God we've been working on this temple for a few months now how about coughing up some food, some wine and God's saying sorry it just doesn't happen quite that way. I'm going to let your sin run its natural course. While you were disobedient through this last planting, it's going to run its course, and you'll be short. But from this time on, market, I'm going to bless you. Next year's crop will be good. You will not lack for anything that you need. And I think we fail to understand that as people. That we get ourselves into jams, tough jams. We say, God, help me out. And sometimes he chooses to do that. But oftentimes he allows us to let our sin run its natural course. Whatever it is that we may be caught up in. Whatever it is we may be involved in. And God says, it's by my design that the sin will run its natural course. But I'm still with you and I'm still going to bless you. And this blessing for them was one which was not just immediate but it was going to be a future. And for these people, they had to consider again, how are we spelling success? They were spelling success in terms of what they had. And the fact that they didn't have the grain and the wine, they felt that they were not successful. And the world, how does the world spell success for us? Well, the world oftentimes spells success by the words divorce. By the words abortion. By the words adultery. By the words power. By the words new car, new clothes, big house. And this idea... Is presented to us as truth on TV, on billboards and magazines, and it tugs and tugs and tugs and tugs until we begin to believe it. And when we begin to believe it, then we're in trouble. Because God doesn't spell success that way. Remember how God spells success? He spells it by saying, be faithful. It's in faithfulness, it's in obedience. It's in righteousness. That's how I spell success. I want you to be faithful in your marriage relationships. I don't want you to bail out physically or emotionally. I want you to be faithful as parents. I want you to meet their needs. I don't want you to be selfish and push them aside and turn a deaf ear to them. I want you to be faithful and meet the needs of the poor. I want you to pray for those people who persecute you. I want you to be faithful to me. I want you to be different people because you have a different standard of success. You're not like the world. Be different from the world. Note that success is being whatever I've asked you to be, whatever I've called you to do. When I was here in Boise uh, for about a year, there was a time at which I went through some uh, great discouragement. And the ministry just didn't seem to be falling in place for me as I had hoped. And I was encountering various problems from uh, folks within the congregation. And I came into my office, and David was there, uh, because he'd been kicked out of his, I guess. He was sitting there, and I plopped myself down, and he'd already heard of my plight. He said, Terry, all God asks of you is to be faithful. He doesn't ask you to be successful, He doesn't ask you to have a big ministry. He just asks you to be faithful, to do what he's asked you to do. And every one of us is in a particular situation or a context. And in order to be successful, all God is asking you to do is to be faithful. But first of all, you need to be faithful to him. Obedient to him. And then this blessing is extended in the last message. Again on the same day, December 18th. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai, the twenty-fourth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of of the kingdoms of the nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. See, God said you're going to bless those people from that day, and I believe that he did. But he also says there's going to be a future blessing, and one that we will share in. As David sung about, there's going to be a time when God sets things right. Hey, I mentioned it earlier in this chapter, and he mentions it again. There's going to be a shaking, a time when God is going to restructure things, redesign things, and with that shaking will come a new order. One that we can rejoice in. One that we will share the blessing in. You see, because this world now, individually and nationally, it's filled with injustice, with war, with unrighteousness, with poverty. And there's going to come a time when Jesus comes back and takes his rightful place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when he does that, everyone will share in the blessing of those who will come and see that there is no more injustice. There is no more war. There is no more poverty. And that will be the new order. And Zerubbabel here stands as a representative of Christ. He is the one who is going to rework that new order as a representative of Christ here. He is in the lineage of David. If we look at the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, we see that there's David and several names, and Zerubbabel and several names, and then Jesus. And so the Lord and Hagar are using Zerubbabel here to say that that Jesus Christ is the servant. He is the one who is going to be the signet ring. He is the one who is the chosen one. And instead of using Jesus Christ here, he uses the rubbable because that's in the family line. So we need to remember this morning that the standard, the way in which we spell success, which was true for them at that time is still true for us today. We spell it by faithfulness. And with respect to this future blessing, it's those who respond to God in their heart. It's those who respond to the King. It's those who live by faith. Their righteousness comes through faith. We respond to the Prince of Glory. So it would be wise for us this morning to heed the words of Haggai when he says, Consider your ways. Consider your lifestyle from your heart. Take thought as to how you spell success. Because it makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us, for your servant, Haggai, for his words, for his faithfulness to you. And I pray that as we've looked at this book over these last couple of weeks, you would help us as we turn to it in the future to remember your words of obedience, of encouragement, of the way in which you spell success for us. And help us, God. Help us so much because we need it. Through your Spirit, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to respond in obedience as we take courage and work. Thank you for the gift of your Son, who is going to come and set things right. In his name we pray. Amen.